Hey, dealmakers, and welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. Let's do this. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing Podcast, hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc, where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just starting out or you want to scale your syndication business, this is the show for you. So a recent Wall Street Journal article reports on a multifamily operator who lost 3,200 units in Houston to foreclosure. So is this a sign for more calamity to come? Are we headed for a flood of foreclosures? Like what's going on? So in this solo episode, I'm going to kind of delve into what's going on with this particular case in the market in general. And I'm going to speak to you if you're both a GP, a general partner, or you want to be a general partner, an active investor, an entrepreneur, or if you are or want to be an LP, a limited partner who wants to invest passively in these syndications. So the question is, what can you learn from this? So if you're a GP, what should you be looking for when buying your next multifamily property? If you're an LP, what questions should you ask the operator before investing in your next syndication? And finally, what should we expect moving forward? Should we wait for a bit or should we look for opportunity? And if so, what should we be looking for? So we're going to cover all of that in just a minute. But before we do, I want to give a special shout out to Nathaniel, who left us a review on Amazon for the yellow book called Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing. Nathaniel says, it's a very good read. This book truly is a blueprint to financial freedom as long as you're willing to do the work. I like that a lot. It's a good summary, Nathaniel. It's exactly what we want to do. We want to give you the blueprint to financial freedom with real estate. And if you've read the yellow book, man, I'd love to get a review on Amazon. Help us get the word out. And if you enjoy this podcast, love to get a review from you on iTunes as well. I also want to shout out people who are doing deals right now. We do this every single week and people are still doing deals. They've been doing it since we started this podcast in 2014. Despite what the market is doing, people are still getting deals done. That should be a major important data point for you that deals are getting done. Though, of course, the details and the underwriting may change from time to time. But today is John Manfredi's He's been in, in real estate for a long time, but of course, only recently and discovered multifamily. He's crushed it. He's actually became financially free very, very recently. And I actually had him on a podcast a little while ago. So congratulations, John, on becoming financial free with real estate, really what we're all about. So I'm really glad you will take care of the resources we provide with you and crush it. And that's awesome. Definitely listen to the podcast episodes a couple episodes ago. And it what he what he does is he really got into sort of development as well, because he's got an architecture background. And it's really interesting. We don't do development, but I, I love it. And Monday, we'll probably get into uh, development as well. So really, really interesting podcast. He was one of our mentoring students, actually went through our mentoring program, the best on the planet. If you think mentoring might be for you, just check it out. Just go to themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. And it's very simple. Just schedule a call with one of our advisors and see if mentoring is right for you. But you know, it's it's really for you if, well, if you can afford to invest in yourself in that way. And if you want to achieve your goals faster, typically our mentoring students, the average deal size is around $4 million and they typically almost always partner with each other. So if you have access to deals and need money, we can find that for you and as, as well as the other way around. So check it out at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. So what's going on right now in, in this market? So if you don't own any multifamily buildings whatsoever, what you're looking at right now is complete and utter opportunity. It is an amazing opportunity to buy. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what's happening if you have some multifamily, what's going on there. And this is what we're talking about, this 3,200 unit foreclosure in Houston. 
what happened there and, and what's really going on with people who have apartment buildings right now. Now, if you're an investor in one, if you're an LP in one, you might be wondering what's going on. So I'm going to talk to you as well. And once I talk to you about what's going on here and what you can do to before you invest in your next multifamily, regardless of whether you're a GP or an LP, it is really an amazing opportunity that we're seeing right now. But I'm going to explain to you why that opportunity is coming about. So what's happening right now is existing multifamily operators are getting squeezed. And they're getting squeezed in, in at least two ways. Previously, in the old days, they only got squeezed in one way. So now they're getting squeezed in three ways. One way is if not if they don't operate well and they don't they don't realize the business plan, they don't make the money they they project. Okay, so that's that's never going to change. But now they're getting squeezed in two additional ways, and it's really precipitated by the rapid rise of interest rates we've seen over the last twelve to eighteen months since the Fed started raising rates so quickly. It's not so much the height of the of the interest rates; it's the speed with which they went up. And what happens is when we all bought buildings a year, year or two ago, the good operators underwrote deals with higher interest rates in the future. Everybody knew that. In fact, we were buying interest rate caps to prevent the mortgage interest payments going up beyond one point or two points or certain ceiling. And then we underwrote the deals using that ceiling and everything worked just fine. Not everybody did that though, right? And so what happened now over the last 12 to 18 months is the interest rates have gone so high that it squeezed out any remaining cash flow in these deals. And so this is when if you're an LP, some of the distributions you received may have slowed or even stopped entirely because of this thing. So as interest rates go, goes up, it takes the, the cash, it reduces the cash flow. If the good operators have gotten interest rate caps, then the exposure to that interest rate hike was, was limited. Still, it has an impact on distributions. So that's number one. So if, if you're already operating in the red or, or minimal cash flow, this rise in interest rates really squeezes out the remaining cash flow and, and may cause the what I call not so good operators or NSGOs, the not so good operators, to now operate in the red. That's a major problem caused by these, by these interest rates. And this presents an opportunity to find deals that are operating in the red, that are losing money where the operator needs to get out. So that's number, number two. There's a third component of that, which is sort of related, but not really. And those are these interest rate caps. It's imagine buying an insurance and that insurance costs, let's say $30,000 per year, okay? And then when the insurance is up for renewal, all of a sudden you find out that that same insurance policy that you bought, that you thought was a good, good idea for the deal now costs $800,000, okay? This is, this is what happened to these interest rate caps that we bought a year or two ago for what we thought was a lot of money. Now these things are expiring. They're starting to expire now. They'll expire over the next 12 to 18 months, these interest rate caps, and they have to be renewed at vastly higher cost than anyone could have understood or predicted or underwritten back then. The problem with that is it creates real problems. So you don't normally have $800,000 laying around. And if you do have it laying around, it's probably coming out of your construction budget. If you take the money out of the construction budget, okay, now you can't execute the business plan. You need to renovate the property so you can raise the rents so you can realize your business plan. Now, not having that money now hurts that business plan. A lot of operators have depleted their, their construction budget or maybe didn't have a really good construction budget, and now they can't renew that interest rate cap. What to do? Well, it depends on the kind of operator you are. If you're performing very well, you can try to refinance out of it, but you have to be performing very, very well because the biggest problem, the reason that prices have been down over the last months is because the mortgage proceeds, the loan to value are much lower than they were a year or two ago, much lower. And that is because lenders 
are perceiving this environment as a, as a high risk environment. And so they're lowering their LTV, the loan to values, and they won't lend as much. So trying to refinance right now is very difficult unless you're crushing your numbers. If you're crushing your numbers, you can refinance. Now, if you're not crushing your, your numbers, you can't refinance. You can't get enough loan proceeds from, from an agency loan, for example, to repay the old bridge loan that we that we had. And so that's that's a problem. What are you going to do, right? So you you can sell, but now you're selling at a major loss. You can't refinance. So what can you really do? Well, this, these owners in, in, in Houston decided to turn the keys back to the bank, which is an option, but there's many things that will, as we'll discover, they could have done to prevent that from happening. An utter loss, 100% loss of investor capital was very preventable along the way. They didn't do that. This, on the other hand, now gives us opportunity to pick up these deals for pennies on the dollar. We're already starting to see it right now. We had a peer of ours pick one up about a month ago where the interest rate cap was coming up and the owners did not or could not, probably could not, did not feel like they could they could do a capital call from their investors to get additional capital to extend the interest rate cap. And so they picked it up for, for about 50 cents on the dollar, an amazing opportunity. And it kind of, of course, was off-market. I think what's going to happen moving forward is that we're going to get a lot of off-market deals in exactly the same way. Operators who are in trouble will call their brokers or will call other operators to try to get them out. And what we're seeing now is there are, there's many operators that I call them the NSGO category, not so good operators. And they are not taking action right now. They think that through some magic bullets, the market will fix itself and they can ride this out. I think it's a major mistake. And it's possible that these guys in Houston thought the same thing and it came very, very quickly. So I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity to buy. But let's talk about some of those things. The question really is, well, gosh, how could people have prevented from investing with these operators in Houston where they lost 100% of the capital, which is really, really bad? Because situations like this are always teachable moments. So what I want to talk to you about next is really the questions to ask, the critical questions to ask, and what to look for before investing in your next multi-syndification, either as an LP or a GP. All right, so here are the top questions to ask before investing in your next multifamily deal. Question number one, what kind of debt are you using? If you're the GP and if you're, if you're the LP, then ask the question to the operator, what kind of debt are you using? And you want to know that because it needs to match the kind of business plan that is being proposed. So here's what I mean. Let, let's say the business plan calls for holding the asset for 10 years. Then a 10 or 12 year fixed term loan is fantastic. On the other hand, if, if like, like we do, we do a lot of value add deals and the plan is to improve the property, very, very significantly a value add deal. And really the best place to refinance in say three years, then a 10 year loan is not going to be good because of the prepayment penalties. This is also why so many operators, including us, did, did bridge bridge loans because we're buying more distressed assets. Distressed assets, with anything that's occupied under 90%, you need to get some kind of bridge loan. Now we got we got interest rate caps on that as well. But but if I'm doing a if I'm doing a three-year value add and I want to basically refinance and I, I'm not going to get a 10-year loan because the prepayment penalties are going to be so high that you can't refinance or sell. And we, we sell in the early days, we were very proud of ourselves. Like we had locked in super low interest for 12 years, right? But then the markets went up so much and we couldn't sell the daggone thing. We had millions of dollars in prepayment penalties and it couldn't, we just couldn't make the numbers where you can never sell. We still have the assets. We're waiting for those prepayment penalties to burn off. And so that's awful. So really look at the debt. And, and of course, if you're using a bridge loan, then make sure that the operator, or if you're the operator yourself, Make sure you're, you're purchasing an interest rate cap. 
Now you could say, well, gosh, how can higher can interest rates go? I don't know. But I don't know if you can defend buying a bridge loan right now without buying an interest rate cap. I would work the interest rate cap into the deal, right? So we just closed the deal about two months ago. We made $2.2 million for a four-year interest rate cap, right? And our, our, our goal is to refinance after two to two, three years. And that's very, very expensive. And, and you could argue, my gosh, why buy an interest rate cap when there's no way the interest rate's going up higher than 2%? He have a good point. But who am I going to speculate on that? If I can make the deal work, then I'm going to do it all day long because it's more conservative that way. So question number one is, what kind of debt am I going to use? And does that match the business plan? Question number two is, to what extent is the property cash flowing from day one? So there's a thing called a debt service coverage ratio, and it's really the ratio of the net operating income to the debt service. In other words, banks want to know that the net operating income is more than your debt service is going to be. In fact, they want it to be 1.25 more. And so that's typically a, a bank requirement. If the, if the DSCR ratio is lower, the bank will often require that certain interest be paid into escrows to accommodate that difference and to reduce their risk. So if the DSCR is 1.25, then you know that the debt that the property is cash flowing from day one, which is good. If it's not cash flowing from day one, it's not the end of the world. It just raises the risk level, right? It's not the same as a multifamily syndication where the cash flow is already positive from the from day one. So just realize that you're looking for a risk-adjusted return right now and just know that one multifamily syndication deal is not created equal. There's different, different variables, right? Obviously, getting a bridge loan and doing a heavy value-add deal is, is riskier than buying a stable asset at 90% and using a Fannie or Freddie Mac, Mac loan. Same thing here. If the property is cash flowing from day one, that's more conservative, less risky than one that's not. But it's a very important question to ask. Question number three, are there enough reserves? Now, Apple's Way, this is the company that bought this Houston property. It's called Apple's Way. They bought this thing in December of 2021, very end of 21. Six months later, the pool has been reported according to these articles that you can find. You can just Google 3,200 unit foreclosure Houston. And there's several of them out there. Wall Street Journal has a few and as well. But it appears that about six months later, the pool had turned green, trash was piling up, and the Houston mayor threatened legal action against them. Now, how did all of these things happen so quickly, six months into a deal? Like, obviously, I'm not privy to the details, but it seems to me that they started running out of money within just a few months of their purchase. Now, how in the world is this possible? This is only possible if they didn't have enough cash reserves at purchase. Now, our rule of thumb, when you're purchasing a multifamily property, is you should have at least $1,000 per unit in reserves when you buy the property, right? So, you know, 50 units now is you're, you're having, you know, you have so well, $1,000 per unit. So the, the point is they did not have the cash reserves in place to ride something out. The reason you do it is for kind of things that you don't foresee. So you, you want to have cash reserves when you go into the at closing. And then what you want to do is you want to hold back a cash reserve as you're operating. Again, for emergencies unforeseen. And our, our rule of thumb is $250 per unit per year, what we call replacement reserves. And that is basically to, to build up your, your, your cash, cash reserves for emergencies. Now, obviously, if I have to raise more money for cash reserves, that reduces my purchase price, right? I can't pay as much as the a, as a next syndicator who's not doing that. If I'm not taking $250 per month per year out per unit, then my cash flow is higher and I can pay more. I can overpay. So the bottom line is this. You don't ever want to run out of money. That's, that's what happened to this operator. 
You just don't want to run out of capital because a lot of things happen and you can ride them out if you have cash or cash flow coming in. So if you're an LP, these are questions to ask is how many reserves do you have going into the deal? And what are your replacement reserves, right? And if the operator says, well, I don't have, I don't even know what that is. That again, raises the risk level. I'm not saying it's a showstopper, but these are all things in your mind as an investor, you're putting together and you're kind of building in your mind the level of risk in this investment. And if you don't have cash reserves going in it and you're not building up replacement reserves, then the risk is higher. Question number four to ask is, does the construction budget support the business plan, right? So if you're a GP, you want to raise rents, well, okay, you better renovate something, right? Well, why? What, what justifies a higher increase in rents? Typically, it's because you're renovating, making the property look nicer. Now, it doesn't look like Apple's way. The, the operator in, this, in Houston had a construction budget. Uh, otherwise, they would have had money to fall back on to operate the property, right? So if they're running out of money because they didn't get an interest rate cap, okay, well, they should have had a construction budget. It, it makes you wonder whether they even planned on improving the property in, in the first place. Right. So how, well, how are they going to increase rents and do nothing? Or were they just betting on market appreciation that is outside their control to deliver returns to investors? I don't know what their plan was, but it appears to me if they had a construction budget, they shouldn't have been running out of money three to six months later. So if the operator has a plan for renting their property and ask, what is the construction budget? And is that sufficient to execute the plan? In addition to a construction budget that should make sense, does the operator have at least 10% of the construction budget in reserve in case construction costs more? Construction is always more than you think it's going to cost. It's going to take longer. It's always a good measure. If you have a million-dollar construction budget from your general contractor and or your property manager, well, then, gosh, you know, add 10% on top of that for good measure. It's just a good practice. Question number five is how conservative are the underwriting assumptions? Now, I didn't have the benefit of watching Apple's Way presentation to their investors, but I did see one of their cover pages or summary, which advertised an internal rate of return of 20, it was above 20%. I don't remember what it was, like 21 or something percent, which is a really high return for properties purchased during that time. Now, how did they underwrite that deal? Because, you know, what assumptions did they make with regards to rent increases, vacancies, exit cap rates? Because here's the thing, I can make my spreadsheet say anything I want to say, <laughs> right? So it's important not to pay too much attention to the returns, but to the assumptions behind the returns, right? So this is really important if you're a GP is what are your assumptions behind the returns? If you're an LP, look behind the returns because you're looking for a risk adjusted return. You have to understand what the risks are. If you want to understand the level of risk, you have to understand the assumptions being made. So for example, how realistic are the projected rent increases? Why does the operator believe they can increase the rents as projected, right? Is it because of renovations? What are the comps looking like? Does the story make any kind of sense to you at all? What about the vacancies, right? If you're doing a lot of renovations at like this typical and value add deal, it's unreasonable to expect that occup occupancy rates are 90% after the first year. It just doesn't make any sense, right? Because you're turning over units and, and so they're going to be emptier in the first year or two while you're doing executing your value add strategy. A big one, a big gigantic variable is the cap rate at exit, right? So the cap rate is basically, it's a measure of, of, of valuing a property. And it's typically, uh, takes the NOI from that determines the value of the property. The higher the NOI, the higher the value of the property is, right? So the cap rate typically varies over time and varies within a, a submarket. So this cap rate is, is this, this number that allows me to estimate the value of a building at any given moment. It's very, very important when you sell the property, okay? And so what is that cap rate? 
typically in our underwriting, the cap rate is equal to or higher than it is now. And, and, and the higher the cap rate, the lower the prices are. So what we're saying is, well, just for good measure, I'm going to make the cap rate a half a percent higher than it is right now because it's just more conservative. Now, if you're looking at a deal where the cap rate is exactly the same as today, it's less conservative, more aggressive. If you see a deal where the cap rate at exit is lower, that means that the operator is predicting higher market prices in general. They're saying that the market is going up for some reason. And I don't love that because I don't know. I'm speculating. I can't control the market. What I control, I control the NOI. And I control that by renovating the property, increasing the rents, reducing the expenses. So I, I control the NOI, therefore the value, but I can't really control the market. And so if you look at the cap rate, just look at it and say, well, is this cap rate lower or higher than the, than the market cap rate is right now? The higher the cap rate is, the more conservative it is. It's an inverse relationship, all right? So look for that. So those are some of the things to look for in, is, is the vacancies, the cap rate, obviously the interest rates where you talked about that, as well as the, the rent projections, right? So how conservative or how aggressive are they? Question number six is, is there the right team in place to operate the property successfully? Now, Apple's Way scaled to 3,200 units in like two years. Now, that's impressive. I'm a little jealous, actually. But the question is, did they have the operations to scale that fast? I don't know, but based on what appears to happen, my only conclusion is that the answer is, is, is no. They didn't have the team in place because they weren't able to, re, to, to actually operate those properties. Otherwise, the pool wouldn't have been green, the trash wouldn't have piled up. And there wouldn't be tenant complaints and lawsuits happening, right? So it appears that they did not have the operations. At Nighthawk, which is our investment company where we buy apartment buildings and operate apartments, we have found that the hard work really in this business is operating and executing the business plan. And it's absolutely critical. Like back when I was flipping houses, you would always say, oh, you make money when you when you buy, which is true for flipping houses. But in, in apartment buildings, you only make money when you operate. <laughs> You're not making money if you don't operate well. And so good operators, they have to focus on building the proper capacity to ensure the highest likelihood of delivering on the projected returns to investors. So, so really, if you're, if you're a GP, make sure that you invest properly in the asset management and the operations. Do not underestimate the, the level of effort it takes to really operate well. And if you're an LP, Make sure that that the whoever operator you invest with has a team that's capable of handling the scale if they're scaling very fast. So don't scale faster than your operations. And if that means that you need to pause the acquisitions machine for a little while, so so be it. So again, as an LP, ask the operator for the track record. Who's on their team? Who does what? If you're an LP and you're you're looking for track record, it's a new partnership. It's not the end of the world, okay? Because joint ventures happen all the time. But in that case, then you want to understand what the partners have done individually. What is their individual track record? Again, if the team that you're investing with does not have a collective track record, just be mindful that it raises the risk a little bit more than a team that's already been established for a number of years. Ask who has control, right? You Sometimes you have like 10 partners in a deal and you're like, my gosh, how do you vote? And who else has the ultimate control? Who's the majority partner here? Also ask about the track record of the property manager. That's really, really critical. And because at the end of the day, the entire deal really depends on the quality of the team. So if you're a GP, really focus on putting together that team really well. And if you're an LP, really just focus on that team. Now, question number seven is, how will you take care of the tenants, right? If you're the operator, how are you going to take care of the tenants? What's your plan? And if you're the LP, ask the operator the same question. How would you plan to take care of the tenants? 
Now, while it's possible that the article simply failed to mention this, it doesn't look like Apple's way made any effort to improve the lives and communities of their tenants. Judging by how quickly they appear to have run out of money, there's no indication to me that they ever had any kind of construction budget at all. They never really planned to improve the property. Now, at Nighthawk, again, our investment company, taking care of our tenants is a core value of ours. Like That's how we operate. It's, it's key. And we put a tremendous amount of work into improving our properties from the outside aesthetics, the amenities, adding amenities, and down to the finishing in each unit. Now, obviously, they're there for economic reasons. We want to make more money for our investors, but it has a very pleasant side effect, and that is it improves the quality, the living quality of the tenants there. And so we aspire to make property each property something that the investor is proud to put their money in, something that we're proud to operate, and, and something that the tenant is proud to live in. So the lesson is simple yet profound. If you're a GP, gosh, take care of your tenants. Make sure your business plan takes care of your tenants. And, and if you're an LP, you might say, you know what, I'm only going to invest with operators who take care of their tenants. So ask questions around, what is your plan for taking care of the tenants? If you want to work with a full-time syndicator to help you get up to speed faster, get your first deal done this year, and scale your portfolio so you can quit your job, then check out our mentoring program. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. It's the only program out there that actually guarantees results. That's right. We actually guarantee that you do your first deal in the first year. Otherwise, we'll keep working with you. And set up a, a strategy session call and explore whether it's right for you. It's themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. Question number eight, if you're an LP, is how is the operator going to educate you about the investment? How are they going to help you make better investing decisions? If you're a GP, how are you going to educate your investors about the investment? Now, in addition to buying right, using all of the conservative underwriting we talked about earlier, the real lesson from the Houston foreclosure is to educate your investors so that they can make better investment decisions. Now, it appears that Apple's way attracted less sophisticated investors. And they were less likely to understand that a 21% IRR is, doesn't seem right. It just seems too good to be true. Uh, an educated investor would have asked Apple's way if they are buying an interest rate cap, for example. And if that would be my first question, oh, it's a bridge loan, cool. All right, do you have an interest rate cap? Well, what is it? They wouldn't have known to ask that question. Now, it's okay to attract unsophisticated investors. That's okay. We want to open up you know, Main Street and real estate to, to as many people as possible. But but if you do, just to make sure you educate them before you ask them to invest. I, I, at the end of the day, an educated investor is a better investor. And now, and also at the same time, I think it's really important as a GP that you give your investors insight into your underwriting assumptions. I, I don't know if Apple's way did that, but we almost do it because we always do it because we want to highlight where we're conservative, right? So if we're not showing a 21% IRR and ours are only 14.5%. The reason is because we're putting our deals in a particular risk-adjusted return category, okay? And, and we want to be maybe on the lower on the lower end, and so we want to show them why that is. Why is the return lower than some ground-up development? And so we're going to highlight those assumptions. But it's really important, especially if you're an LP, to ask questions about these critical underwriting assumptions. To me, if I'm a GP, I want to highlight these assumptions, and I want to sell the, the selling points of the deal about why ours are conservative. Also, in this environment, investors really are more concerned about the risk. They're more really concerned more about the loss of capital, not so much on the return. So I think you're gonna do it's gonna be easier for you to raise money if you actually highlight the risk. If you say, look, there's some risk involved here, the risk could be that it's gonna take us longer to turn the units. 
But the way we're mitigating that, we have a really, really experienced general contractor we've been working with. Right? Another risk could be X, Y, and Z, but we're mitigating it like that. Now you're being honest about the risk, but you're also showing your investors that you know what the risks are and what you're doing to manage them as well. Now, our investment company, Nighthawk Equity, spends an enormous amount of time and money creating educational content for potential investors every single week. And this podcast is uh, certainly an example of that as well. Now, I, I brought up Nighthawk a few times here. If you're listening to this here and limited partner, you want to, you're interested in alternative investments in real estate, we'd love to have a conversation with you. So just head on over to nighthawkequity.com and you can schedule a call with us on that website. We'd like to get to know you a little better and see what which one of our opportunities might be a right fit for you. And then, you know, we're going to answer your questions, educate you about this alternative investment class, which I think is just the best there is in the world, far better than than stocks, obviously crypto and a bunch of other things are, are out there. Multifamily syndications are still the best investment vehicle. We'd love to share that with you. So head on over to nighthawkequity.com and set up a call with you as well. So really the question is, is how willing, back to education here, how willing is the operator to answer your questions? Now, do they welcome your questions or are they annoyed by them? So if to me, it should be a red flag if an operator is unwilling to answer your questions or they feel they're, they feel annoyed by you asking them questions. Question number nine is how well does the operator communicate? That's really directed at the LPs, but it's really something that's critical as a GP. You've got to operate well with your investors. Now, Apple's way is investors didn't seem to know what was going on. Now, judging from the timeline in the article, as far as the investors were concerned, everything was going well. They received regular reports and distributions. But we know that the wheels were coming off operationally during the summer of 2022 while this, all this was happening. So obviously, things were not all great, but it seemed to the investors everything was great. Then all of a sudden, February of 23, about a year afterwards, Apple's Way asked the investors for more money. It's known as a capital call. And that blindsided the investors. Like, what are you talking about? We've gotten distributions, and now you're asking us for money? What's going on? And two months later, the lender foreclosed on the property. Now, if, if you're a GP, the lesson is to always communicate with your investors, especially when things are not going well. Now, it's not a pleasant thing to do. Okay, it really isn't. No one wants to communicate with investors if things aren't going as planned. But the one thing I've learned over the many years, and this doesn't include just multifamily and single family houses, but also restaurants, is that investors never want to be surprised. They don't want to be blindsided, right? They want to know what's going on. If you want to continue receiving their trust, you'll tell them what's going on, even if it's an unpleasant news. At Nighthawk, we, we strive to be candid with our investors and treat them as true partners. And again, this is something that's really hard to do because you always want to put on an optimistic tone of voice. But sometimes you just got to be honest with investors. Not every deal is going to go according to plan. And so we communicate our property's performance with our investors, both through financial reports and narrative. The first 90 days after we close on a deal, we actually have live webinars. And then we want to be available to our investors in real time. So if you're an LP, ask yourself this. How well has the operator communicated with you since you contacted them? How frequently do they plan to communicate with you once the deal closes? You can ask them. And then how accessible do they appear to be if you want to talk to them anytime, really? So if an operator is commuting poorly when you, to, with you when times are good, how do you think they're going to communicate with you when things aren't going so well? Right? So only invest with operators who communicate well and are always accessible when you have questions. So there you have the nine questions you should ask before investing in your next multifamily syndications. And if you're a GP or LP, then, then this 3,200 unit foreclosure should remind all of us to ask the right questions before investing in the next syndication. Now, this has always been the case. This is really nothing new, but it is a really important reminder now than ever before is to really ask these kind of questions 
before you get into a, into a deal. Now, one thing I, I want to end by saying is that there's a lot of fear right now in the market. I've talked to a lot of people, both prospective GPs and prospective LPs, or even people that have invested previously who are now in the, they are in the sidelines. But they're both in the sidelines waiting to see what's going to come. Okay, I think this is a major mistake. What's coming is nothing but opportunity. And let me let me explain to you what, why I'm why I'm saying that. Number one, we're going to get opportunity. We're we're going to get we're already starting to get discounted deals coming. That's an opportunity itself. But deals are already about 15-20% down from March of last year where the, the high point of the market. And that's simply for the reason I mentioned earlier, which is the lending environment is really hard right now. Lenders are pulled back. The loan proceeds have gone down. Therefore, if you can borrow less, then prices are going down. And so as a result, volume, sales volume is down because sellers still have expectations from last year. And buyers said, hey, the market has changed. My lending terms are different. I can't pay, pay as much as more. And so there's a there's a disconnect there. And, and that explains the lower volume. But then also there are people who have no choice. These are the NSGOs and not so good operators. They don't have a choice. They can't say, oh, I really want my price from last year. I'm just going to wait it out. They can't afford to operate in the red. They're running out of money. They can't fund the expiring interest rate caps. They have to sell. Okay, so therefore, opportunity is coming. Now, when you're coming, getting into a new deal, look at how these deals are being underwritten right now. They're being underwritten, I would say, about 12 months ago. We were at the, I would say, towards the height of the market. The price was higher than ever. Cap rate was the lowest. Loan proceeds were the highest, okay? Within 12 months, we are now what I would consider toward the lower bottom of the market. Can the market go down a little bit lower? I suppose it could, but just keep in mind that the fundamentals of multifamily have not changed at all. That rental demand is just as, as, as high as it was before. We're not building any more affordable housing. So the fundamentals are just as high as they were before, right? So it's really the lending environment that, that has changed. And so you have to recognize that the, the, the stuff that's being bought right now is being bought towards the very lower end of the market. Now, normally these market cycles take like five to seven years. They take slow. But because the Fed raised interest rates so quickly, Okay, it basically sped up an entire market cycle. So seven years, it just it lasted 12 months. So you have to understand that anything that's being underwritten right now is being underwritten in the lower portion of the market cycle. That, of course, sounds and smells like opportunity, which, which it is. The problem is there's blood in the streets and everyone's running scared. And so now no one is investing, even though they should. That's when Warren Buffett invests, right? He he, he invests when fear is at the highest. That's when he backs up the truck, okay? When the, when greed is everywhere, he backs away. Now, we had a greed about 12 months ago, okay, in March of 2022, the height of the market, and now it has swung to the other side. So it is now really the time not to retrench and to wait. It is now time to ask the question, how can I get involved? And how can I get involved as much as I possibly can? And you have to distinguish the deals that are being bought right now are completely different animals than they were 12 months ago. Now, they still have multifamily syndication in the name, I suppose, but they're underwritten in a completely different way. The loan to value is much lower. We have to raise much more equity now. The interest rate is, the, is super, super high, super high, right? And the rent projections are probably much more conservative than they were 12 months ago. No one should be underwriting rent pro increases of 10% per year. It should be back down to where it was 2.5%, 3% where it used to be. So the, the underwriting assumptions are much, much different than they were 12 months ago. So if you're a GP right now, you're like, oh, I should wait and see what happens. Don't do that. It is now time to get your education, right? This is why I shouted out the mentoring program earlier at the michaelblanc.com forward slash mentor. Just schedule that call and, and see how we can help you get into this game now. 
I think this this environment is going to create more millionaires over the next 18, 24 months than we've had in a long, long time. Now's the time to get in. If you're an LP, don't sit on the sidelines. Get involved. Ask these questions, though. Definitely ask the operators these nine questions. I think if you had asked any number of those questions to, to the Houston opportunity, you would not have invested. And now you're armed with those nine questions. Ask those questions before you invest. But ask yourself, how can you get involved in this unbelievable asset class right now? So hopefully that was helpful. I just want to remind you what to look out for. Again, these, these questions have always been on the table, but now there's some people that are getting burned. And so you got to make sure you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I, I was talking to someone just recently about, and they're no longer in real estate. They used to be in real estate, but they lost their shirt in 2008. Well, what happened? Well, they got their ass kicked. And their conclusion was, uh-oh, all real estate bad. Okay, that is the wrong conclusion. First of all, real estate is not real estate. There's different kinds of real estate. And then the market cycles change. So don't just throw out multifamily because you, you read an article or two or you heard a story or something like that, or there was maybe a capital call or your distributions are slightly lower or non-existent for a period of time. Understand that any deal that you had up to this point is a completely different deal than anything you get it you might get into right now. So hopefully that gives you some perspective and some encouragement. Obviously be cautious, but be looking for opportunity. Catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Take the next step toward financial freedom by checking out our Freedom Vault, where you can find free resources to help you with apartment building investing. Whether you're an active investor just starting out or looking to scale your syndication business or looking to invest passively, head over to themichaelblanc.com slash vault to gain access to our Freedom Vault.